Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And it's a sad day in a way. We are ending cancer season tomorrow, but today we will be celebrating the July portion of cancer season, covering one of Sophia's beloved directors, George Cukor, and three <laughs> of his Oscar-nominated and winning films. Those will be The Philadelphia Story, Gaslight, and Born Yesterday. I guess to clarify, not that I dislike him, but we will get into all about him, his films, and I guess why he's a big director from this time and what he's known for in his films. Yeah, I think first, just to start out, I love this period in Hollywood history. I always say that the 1970s are my favorite decade in American filmmaking, but I think when I think about film history and just what I like to read about and the time period that I like to get really swept up in, it really is the late 30s up through the early to mid 50s for me. This was a really important time in film history and also in my film education. So I was very into two of these films, especially as a kid. Like I watched The Philadelphia Story and Gaslight when I was single digits. So I think they both are just very important to me in a way. But on our After Dark episode about Barbarella and 9 to 5, when we were talking about Jane Fonda, we were sort of joking and talked about how you like movies that are much more, I think about technical elements or the way that a film is shot. And I really do connect to performances. And George Cukor also really cares about actors, I think almost more than anything else. And I think the direction in a lot of his films, it's really strong, but he's not as interested, I would say, in creating these sweeping vistas or advancing technology in a way. Like he was very committed to giving his actresses huge roles at the time. And in two of these cases, Gaslight and Born Yesterday, Ingrid Bergman and Judy Holliday went on to win Best Actress for both of their performances in highly competitive years, too. So I think what I like about him, aside from the Hollywood lore around him at the time and how he would host these amazing parties for all of the Hollywood talent, how he practically revitalized Katherine Hepburn's career for her. I think I also just really, I like his commitment to putting talent and putting actresses front and center in all of his projects. I did not have the same relationship with him watching these movies growing up. And really in film classes, these weren't movies we covered either. And I guess maybe because it veered more international, but these were all first time watches for me. So... I think getting to see Cukor that way, like we've done previously with Weiler, and we've covered a few from Michael Curtiz recently, and I think comparing them was a dangerous thing because Weiler is really concerned about everything going on in the frame. I think he gets good performances too, but there's the shot composition, the design, which I do think Cukor has. And I yeah. liked, you know, there are these nominations that we'll talk about in these films either costumes or art direction but that isn't the focus it really is the actors and specifically the actresses and that was like far and beyond my favorite part of these movies is watching these a-list stars and oscar winners just outperform 
most of the other actors. And that's not mm-hmm. always the case again, but it's just so fun watching them in these roles. And, you know, you mentioned last time about QCOR and these parties. And I read an interview on Medium about him being this gay director in Hollywood. And that was really not talked about. But mm-hmm. I mean, it really tracks with how you see these actresses in these films. They are center camera at mm-hmm. all times. Yeah, the season one Drag Race Shimmer is all over Very some alive. of these movies, especially in the Philadelphia story. There's a key scene where it is just popping and so, so shimmery and beautiful. Yeah, I think with, you know, all of the, the stories about him in Hollywood and him being known as a women's director or a director who made women's pictures... There are so many stories, right, about him really either being really hard on different actors on set to get the best performances out of them or just completely advocating for these women and making sure that the best performances possible happened for them. We can get into some of those stories as we talk about each of the movies, but really, like, each of the three leading ladies across these films, like, he worked very hard to get them in these parts and make sure that the performances really stood the test of time. And I think all three of them mm-hmm. really are iconic in film history and for each actress's career. And, you know, it's funny too, because he doesn't have the final directing credit on Gone with the Wind, but, you know, there are stories about Vivian Lee going to him specifically still, even after he was fired for advice on her performance, because a lot of these women you know, it, rumor has it that it was, you know, partially they trusted him because he was a gay man in Hollywood and they just, they felt more comfortable around him, especially within the studio system. But they really did see him as this person that they could confide in and get the best advice from ultimately. So yeah, I like imagining his brunches that he would have at his house with these old Hollywood stars and how he would invite these men over for pool parties It really is just fun to think back to that time and imagine what that must have been like. No, my God, like I would absolutely want a ticket in, you know, try to get into that party just to Mm -hmm. even see everybody and just be amazed at what was happening. But talking about a dear friend of George Cukor, Catherine Hepburn, let's get started with the Philadelphia story from 1940. Description here, when a rich woman's ex-husband and a tabloid-type reporter turn up just before her planned remarriage, she begins to learn the truth about herself. This was directed by George Cukor, and the screenplay was written by Donald Ogden Stewart and uncredited contributing writer Waldo Salt, also based on the play by Philip Berry. And this stars Cary Grant, Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart, and Ruth Hussey. It won two Oscars, Best Screenplay and Lead Actor for Stewart, and was nominated for four others, including Picture, Director, Actress for Hepburn, and Supporting Actress for Hussey. So this is definitely a classic movie that people return to every year, and I think all of these leading performances are really iconic, and it just the pairing. We had before this three other Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant movies, which... I'll talk about the ending and what I thought about it, but having that relationship, audiences knew what they wanted. They came for these two actors, but I really love a young Jimmy Stewart here who really steps up in this different performance. At this point in time, we had him in these roles like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, so like more serious things. So 
for him to be improving hiccups on set that make Cary Grant break character. Like that was just a new side to this actor that we hadn't seen. So I really liked him in this. Yeah. There are really many reasons why I love it so much. I really do love these remarriage comedies. There are so many of them that I just really like. So we can get to that when we talk about the ending and just what what that means and why these things happened. But I love bringing up Baby. You mentioned the Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn pair. That's a phenomenal Howard Hawks film. I love that one. I love The Awful Truth. Theodora Goes Wild, His Girl Friday, The Lady Eve. There's so many of these movies that I really like. And it's funny because I don't, you know, The Hayes Code is not great, but it's a really interesting way that directors and screenwriters found their way around The Hayes Code and made these very creative, complex, romantic comedies. So the remarriage genre was really big in the 30s and 40s. But basically how these would work is that the code couldn't punish you necessarily for, you know, dabbling in a little relationship outside of your marriage if you were divorced, because then it technically wasn't an affair. But then, as long as you returned to your original marriage at the end of the day, everything was fine. And I feel like, I don't know why I just like these genres. I mean, it's very retro, like it's very, very of the time. I think today, if certain endings came about like this audiences would be livid because it's not very modern obviously but I don't know I find it just very romantic and beautiful like the idea of returning to something that failed you once before but is still romantic to you in the end there's nothing better to me than I don't know that like feeling of forgiveness when you've screwed something up and you can get them in the end I think that's just a really a relatable feeling and I mean it's still happening today look at Ben Affleck and J-Lo <laughs> That's a remarriage comedy in many oh ways. <laughs> After 20 years, I feel like that is so different. Like they had relationships in between. I don't know. I was just using that as an example, mostly as a joke. But I like the, the construction for a movie. I think it's actually a really smart way to structure your screenplay and to introduce new characters and to show the power of your female character at the center. That's how I felt about, you know, Irene Dunn's character in The Awful Truth, for example, too, in the same way that I feel about Tracy Lord in the Philadelphia story. It's like she is smarter than all of the men around her at the end of the day, but it's a love story and it's a story about her figuring out herself also at the same time. So I love this type of story and it's always one that I've been drawn to. And I think that the performances are just wonderful. Jimmy Stewart, I have such a huge crush on him in this movie. It, I, I love him in most things, but here I really, really like him. I think as... This character who, you know, the Philadelphia story is a great commentary on class Mm -hmm. politics and sexual politics. But thinking about class politics, Jimmy Stewart's character is the one who is really critical of wealth, but also gets really sucked into it. And it's interesting to see how he navigates that and ultimately kind of succumbs to the Tracy Lord character and her power. And I think that that... It's just a really, really beautiful scene. So overall, I think it's just a film that I find a lot of charm in. And I love how it's written. And I love the characters and the performances in it. And it's just such a lovely watch for me to return to. The Criterion restoration is also really beautiful. So highly recommend for fans of the movie. I guess let's just go to the end. And I don't think it's necessarily a spoiler. But 
you've talked about, you know, the era and how these movies were structured anyway. So by this point, we know they get back together, which through me, I mean, I've seen some of these movies before, but I really wasn't expecting it Yeah, because of where things are going. And it feels like it switches pretty abruptly. But the first scene we get, it's a silent scene and C.K. Dexter pushes Tracy Lord down at their house while he's leaving for work. And then that cuts to the divorce listed in the paper or that she's going to be with somebody else. So mm-hmm. in that scene, we learn very simply what these two characters are like, what their relationship is like, and that it's not good for her. So fast forward to the end. She decides to get back with C.K. Dexter, leaving Macaulay Connor. And the man she was supposed to marry, George Kittredge, who is like completely out of the picture at this point. He's not really the one I expected her to get with anyway. Because he's terrible. (laughs) He's not the right person for her. It's clear from the beginning. He's one of the elite. And as is the through line through these movies, is that the rich is bad and the peasants, the working class are the good people. They know the value of work and they're educated on things that really matter so i think for her to have gotten back with ck dexter i expected kind of some redeeming arc to him and i didn't really get that and i had to rewatch the ending a few times to like understand what was happening and why this was happening so that just kind of threw me that was a little disappointing because these female characters are really smart and that's how he frames the whole movie is that they know what they're doing they deserve better And the thing to it is he's sort of propping up the men, but that's just how men are, even today. I mean, it's awful. And we'll go into this more with Born Yesterday and Harry and how clear that performance is. But yeah, I don't know. I still wanted her to end up with Mike at the end. Well, there are two two choices, two alternate endings that I've wanted to happen as I've grown up watching this movie. And now I'm on the... Cary Grant is the right ending for the movie. (laughs) So those two endings are she's an independent woman who doesn't need a man. She shouldn't get married to either of them. That's way too modern and progressive for 1940. And then the other is that she should marry Mike because obviously like they have so much chemistry together in the movie and the scene of them when she gets drunk is one of the most beautiful scenes in a movie i love it so much i think it's just like so glamorous and Mm -hmm. sublime truly i get so swept up in it like when he is carrying her and singing and it's almost shocking because the movie itself just to go off on a quick tangent here related to this but cucor does such a beautiful job of framing katherine hepburn and shooting her he really understands like the angles of her face And he frames her consistently throughout the movie as very statuesque. She is always standing up. You always see her sharp cheekbones and how tall she is and how thin she is and how, you know, she was, she's one of these actresses who wanted to wear pants when everyone else was wearing dresses and skirts. Like she was in this, you know, sleek, elongated menswear and he frames her like that, like a goddess, the whole entire movie until that scene where we see her slumped over and he's carrying her over his shoder and suddenly in that moment it's it's kind of switches your perspective 
and you see her as a human that you can crack through her hardened exterior. So I love that scene. And it is, I think, one of the reasons why you want them to get together in the end, especially because, you know, if these films are critical of class, which I think they are, Mike is the one who is the most critical of the wealthy people. Like He's the one who has kind of infiltrated the family and the wedding, the entire structure of the wedding, really. So I think it's natural for you to root for him, especially because he tends to, I don't know, it's it's difficult too, because I think Jimmy Stewart has chemistry with every single person in this cast. Like he and Cary Grant, you think in one <laughs> moment, like they could get together. It's like uh-huh. a, you really, I think, see that between, between all of these stars, but I don't know. I think there's something about Cary Grant for me when I watch this movie and about C.K. Dexter. I don't know. Maybe it's my poor taste in men or something, but there's something about him where I do think like he can he can be better. Earlier on, she, you know, we learned that he was, you know, he struggled with drinking and everything. And they had this tumultuous fallout of their relationship and they divorced. But I do think at the end of the day that he does make the most sense for her. They are the two that are on the same even playing field the whole time. They are similar in that way. And in a mo- in one moment, Cary Grant tells her that George is beneath her. He wants to be wealthy. He's tried to work his way up and he's part of this like nouveau riche class, which is very different. So it's interesting how they all kind of deal with and discuss wealth very differently. But there are scenes in here, too, where, like, Mike is very irritating and very critical. And, yeah, I don't know. I think all of the characters have their drawbacks. But, yeah, I I always do come back to Cary Grant. My favorite thing between them is that's Yar and Catherine's accent. And Uh that's what I am assuming brings her back to him because of that sailboat that he gives her. And they put it in the pool. I love that moment. She jumps in the pool once and gets out, and that's it. I don't know. I mean, I love, yeah, getting to see Mike and her get acquainted with each other. I There's the scene in the library, which is maybe my favorite moment from Jimmy Stewart, is when the librarian asks him, what does thee wish? And he, like, does a double take back to mm-hmm. her. <laughs> yeah. Inside eyes her. That is the funniest reaction of from this movie. I was dying laughing. But then... Mm-hmm. He finds her in there reading one of his books and she says it's like poetry that you talk so big and tough and then you write like this, which is which, which is one of my favorite lines. So to see their relationship blossom, I love that it's really slow. So I guess my ending is the Mike ending, the, your alternate ending, where where the code doesn't really prevail in the end. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I understand that. It is a tempting alternate ending every time I watch it, especially during that scene when he's carrying her over his shoulder. I think, oh, there's there's hope here. There's a chance for this to work. But then you catch little glances from Cary Grant's character and you see their will-they-won't-they sort of relationship throughout the movie. And that's something that also is just like, I am a moth to a flame when that trope is used in any kind of romantic story. So yeah, I, I don't know. I think it, I'm cur- I'd be curious to hear from listeners, like what you think, like who you think she should have ended up with. 
I just feel like for the story, obviously, and for the genre itself, it makes sense for Cary Grant. But every time I watch it, I am tempted by the mic ending, especially, you know, there's a there's a really funny part near the end where you kind of see him around all of the wedding gifts, touching things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he picks up a utensil and then one of the butlers is there just kind of eyeing him and he like puts it down and doesn't break something but something else moves and he like opens his coat to show him that he hasn't stolen anything like a lot of this humor and Cukor's humor in general is very quick and is pretty quiet like you really mm-hmm. have to notice it to know what's funny yeah it's it's really subtle like that and I do I like that that moment and that look because it's almost like for a second he thinks could I steal this and get away with it? They probably wouldn't care. They probably wouldn't notice. Like, look Mm -hmm. how rich these people are. But it exists again to show that how they're from totally different worlds. So I think that also makes it hurt a little bit more that he doesn't end up with her because you kind of think they can cross this divide, right, Mm -hmm. between classes, but they ultimately don't because they're from completely different worlds. But I think that one of the most interesting things really about this movie is that it completely revitalized Catherine Hepburn's career. I mentioned my love for bringing up baby, but she was listed as box office poison after that movie. So Harry Brandt wrote an article called dead cats. And in this article, he listed Joan Crawford, Greta Garbo, Fred Astaire, Marlena Dietrich, all of these stars as box office poison but really what he was doing in this article is that he was blaming the way that the star system was set up so saying that you know these studios they had to make a lot of these expensive movies with many actors who they were contractually obligated to and he didn't see that system as a system that would work and I think that Catherine Hepburn what was unique about this role was that it was you know originally a play by Philip Barry that was written specifically for her Mm -hmm. and that's important also because she's a really brilliant actress clearly but this role I think is where she really just understands the part in the movie she's playing Tracy Lord but she's also she also is Tracy Lord in many ways and one of the really cool things that I learned about this movie was that she was with Howard Hughes before like right before this movie mm-hmm. and if you remember from the aviator too with the uh, with Kate and Leo <laughs> yeah but he actually bought the rights to the play and gave them to her as a gift which is the greatest gift you can give anyone because basically he was giving her the gift of a second wind in her career but she has a role where it's just it's a very complex, complicated role to take on if you're considered box office poison. Because in my mind, an actress who was struggling with something like that would want to take a really easy role or would want to take something that would make them look perfect in the eyes of the public. But instead, she took a role where she wasn't propped up as this perfect woman or actress, right? Instead, it's a role that consistently and pretty constantly throughout the movie pokes fun at her, at the public's perception of her, and kind of pulls her apart. This idea of how she really intimidated a lot of people. And it's almost like she's interacting with herself and the public's perception of herself in the movie by saying, this is what you think of me. And she also really lets herself get vulnerable in the movie too, which is quite interesting. But Cukor 
also gave her specific instructions of things to do and not to do in the movie based on like what he thought the audience would think of her and how they might respond to her in the movie too. So he was very protective over her image and over, you know, how people responded to her. But yeah, it's just, I think it's such a daring thing to do if the public opinion of you is that low to take something that's actually critical of yourself. That's really cool. And I also like that she convinced Louis B. Mayer to buy the rights from her for 250K, but she still had veto power over producer, director, screenwriter, and the cast. So she just went to her friend, George Cukor, said, hey, do you want to direct this? And he said, yes. So, like, how fun of a production is that where you kind of get the last say on everything? Yeah. And it was gifted to you in that way. Like, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm just so happy that she got this role and I absolutely would have given her best actress over Ginger Rogers for Kitty Foyle. I mean, I know Catherine Hepburn ended up getting four, but for 1940, just considering the other nominees that we had that year and everything. So Ginger Rogers, like I said, ended up winning for Kitty Foyle. Betty Davis for The Letter was there. Joan Fontaine for Rebecca and Martha Scott for Our Town. Nick, don't watch Our Town. It will send you straight into a (laughs) sleepy, sleepy coma. (laughs) I do think Joan Fontaine is great in Rebecca. I also love Betty Davis in The Letter, but Catherine Hepburn for the strength of this role and how she just knows instantly in the movie what everyone is up to and how she's so smart and so glamorous. I just would have given it to her, especially for what it says about who she was at the time and her place in Hollywood. But Jimmy Stewart ended up winning, which is crazy. Best actor up against Charlie Chaplin for The Great Dictator, Henry Fonda for The Grapes of Wrath, Raymond Massey for Abe Lincoln in Illinois and Laurence Olivier and Rebecca. I personally, you know, I said I love Jimmy Stewart and my, you know, my love for him runs deep. But Henry Fonda and the Grapes of Wrath is so amazing. And we both like The Great Dictator a lot too. But Mm -hmm. this was totally a makeup win for him not winning for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And Mm -hmm. he's even insecure about that. I don't think it's a bad win. I think he's great in the movie. I think he's so charismatic and charming, but I definitely would have gone with Henry Fonda, I think. Yeah, since that was the prior year. But, I mean, what a lineup to be up against. And I'm not going to be mad that he has a Best Actor Oscar. I never will be. I do love Ruth Hussey in this as Elizabeth, the photographer. I think she's great. I also love Dinah. Joseph Ruttenberg, the DP, was not nominated But I think that the way that he shoots the nighttime sequence outside is so beautiful. So I would have given him a nomination. I feel like we could have had some others, including Art Direction, because Mm -hmm. of all of the different sets we have, elaborate, decadent ones at their estate. And I mean, we have to say, where is Cary Grant? I used to always joke that, and I kind of still do sometimes, that he was just too good looking (laughs) to really get nominated for an Oscar because... It's kind of criminal when you look at his body of work and realize that he just has an honorary and was only nominated twice. Wow. Yeah, he was nominated the year after and then a few years later, too. But God, I would have assumed he would have way more. 
Right? Wouldn't you think he would have like eight nominations or oh, something like sad. that? Yeah, to yeah. be the lone wolf not nominated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He's too good looking. <laughs> the excuse I'll always use. <laughs> okay, so if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I would give Katherine Hepburn Best Actress for Tracy Lord. You know, there are so many things that I love about this movie, but I really think that she's the standout for me. And I, I love the performance. It's deep. It's incredibly layered, too. And just the fact, again, that she's commenting on and poking fun at herself and at the public's perception of her is very brave. And I love the performance. What about you? Yeah, I agree. I would also give it to Hepburn. I think from a movie from 1940, I could still see trends that Hollywood was trying to figure out or different techniques that directors were trying to use. And I think that's apparent here. Not that it makes the movie bad in any way, but I think Hepburn stands apart where she is just undeniably talented in front of the camera and there is nothing that she couldn't do. I think from the first moment you see her, all of her reactions, just her facial expressions, I love when an actor can do so much, can tell the audience so much and not have to do it through line after line after line. And she has good lines, but to hear that she was box office poison, that her movies weren't performing, but to see her, it just, it doesn't make sense in my brain. Mm -hmm. No, it does not compute. (laughs) (laughs) Because she is just so astonishing here. And yeah, I think she deserves it for sure. She's just luminous. Ugh. And the transatlantic accent, it's just great every time. <laughs> yeah. It's so out of this world. I can't even, I couldn't even attempt to do it. I know. Maybe we should cut that yar that I said because it's oh like you can't even. <laughs> it's so good though. <laughs> okay. On to our next movie, Gaslight from 1944. Description here. 10 years after her aunt was murdered in their London home, a woman returns from Italy in the 1880s to resume residence with her new husband. His obsessive interest in the home rises from a secret that may require driving his wife insane. This was written by John Van Druten, Walter Reich, and John L. Balderston, and it was adapted from the 1938 play by Patrick Hamilton. It stars Ingrid Bergman, Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton, Dame May Witty, and Angela Lansbury in a delightful supporting role. I love her in this when she pops up. Mm-hmm. It's so fun. This movie won two Oscars. Actress for Ingrid Bergman and Art Direction, Interior Decoration, Black and White, and was nominated for five others. Picture, Screenplay, Lead Actor for Boyer, Supporting Actress for Angela Lansbury, and Cinematography, Black and White. So this was your first time seeing Gaslight. I'm so excited to hear the reaction. I'm just curious. I saw the Letterboxd review, and I need to know more. Do you? Does anybody? I'm curious, yeah. I understand what the film is doing, but I feel like it takes so long to get there. And part of that is getting into the mindset of Paula and feeling that insanity. But it is just so spelled out from the very beginning of what's going to happen that I was like, okay, we need to get there. Because there was no twist. I mean, we have... Brian Cameron, the Joseph Cotton detective who Mm -hmm. figures out everything. But again, he figures it out not at the very last second, like maybe I would imagine. And Ingrid Bergman is phenomenal, obviously. 
and having to watch her go through this is really painful. But I think Greg Anton or Serge's Bauer, this super villain of a character, is just so obvious about what he's doing to her that I kind of withdrew a little from that. But yes, I do really love Angela Lansbury. The fact that this was her film debut, I absolutely love, and that she got nominated. She was my favorite part of the movie. But yeah, this was not the overwhelming delight that maybe I thought it would be. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny because so when I was watching it this time, I hadn't watched it in a few years, actually. There are several moments in the movie where Paula just does things and you're like, no, like, don't you see it? Like, can't you mm-hmm. see what he's doing to you? And you just want to shake her. And during one of those moments, I turned to my sister and I said, Nick's going to hate this movie. <laughs> So I did see it coming. So I did see it coming. But yeah, I think the thing about the Sergis Bauer, Gregory Anton character, like, yes, I get that criticism, I guess, that it's spelled out. But I think for audiences in 1944, it probably wouldn't have been not spelled out. Like everything about the jewels and how he's actually really stupid for not knowing where the jewels would be if he was like so obsessed with this woman and had to go back to her house Mm -hmm. and had to, you know, notice, oh my God, they're in the dress that's in this painting of her. Like, how do you not mm-hmm. see that right away, right? But yeah, I, I think for audiences at the time, it um, probably would have been a little bit more difficult to see. I do really like this movie. I'm curious, though, to see the British film yeah. from 1940 by Thorold Dickinson, Angel Street, it's called. Apparently, it's about 30 minutes shorter and I do think this movie feels long. I think it's sort of essential to drag it out in some senses because you have to feel the weight of her being there and her kind of descending into madness at her husband's hands. So I think it works in that way. But the pacing is a bit strange in how it wraps up, I think, rather quickly. But it's funny because I actually saw this movie when I was really young. For any listeners in Columbus... There's a great summer movie series every year called the Kappa Summer Movie Series. This is at the Ohio Theater. They play classic films. They've been doing it for years for like $5. It's amazing. But I saw Gaslight there when I was really young. And I remember thinking that it was a Hitchcock movie for a really long time. Like until I was maybe in high school and I started watching more Hitchcock films. And I think then I just remember realizing like, oh, this feels very different than a Hitchcock film. It doesn't have those sorts of visual flourishes to it. And it's not made in the same way at all. It's much more of a traditional gothic romance than some of Hitchcock's films, which are a bit more perverse, much more playful with the camera. I do think Cukor's direction is good here. I like the way that he plays with the art direction in the space and how he shoots and frames Ingrid Bergman and how you do get the sense that the space is very claustrophobic in a way that feels like it's closing in on her. The interesting thing is that Bosley Crowther, actually the famous New York Times critic from back in the day when these movies came out, he actually thought that the movie was less successful than the play because the play felt more claustrophobic to him being in, you know, one space, being on one set on stage. So I'm curious, I would be curious to see it on stage and see how it would Mm -hmm. compare. But for me, I think that the movie did feel like that. You feel very tight in that space with her. And again, I think Bergman is just wonderful 
in this movie, I think especially because when I think of Ingrid Bergman, I don't think of someone who's particularly fragile. I think of someone who's pretty strong. I mean, she's a very tall woman, too. Like, she's just someone who appears to be just very intelligent. So to see her, I think, in a really vulnerable state, it makes the role more impactful. It just to see, like, oh, this could happen to anyone, really. But also it shows, you know, Cucor's strength in directing actresses to be able to get a performance like that from her. Yeah, I was just about to mention Hitchcock because it does feel like that. He's giving you clues, especially Mm -hmm. when we finally see him in the attic and he's searching through everything. That oversized painting is just sitting there in the background and you can see it. And I'm like, check the painting. And obviously the dress is on there and he eventually sees it. But by this time, Hitchcock had already made the 39 steps. And then in 1940, when the British film came out, we had Rebecca. So we have a lot of these ghost-like or just those Hitchcockian tales where you know that something is amiss and you have to try to figure something out. So mm-hmm. I feel like audiences should have caught on to that maybe. I don't know Cucor's relationship with Hitchcock, but I guess that's what I felt like on the train in the beginning. We have that older woman talking about her novel and Of course, it's going to relate to the movie and foreshadow what's happening. But she talks about a man who's a serial killer and burying his wives. Do you remember her in Mrs. Miniver? She's like that old rich woman who has to win the rose competition. Oh, well, that makes sense. (laughs) And then Greer convinces her (laughs) that that Henry Travers should win. (laughs) Anyway, continue. (laughs) Sorry. Well, she just shows up at the end. So it's kind of this comic relief, but also Mm -hmm. she is an important character. She's so nosy. It's so funny. But like I said, I do love Angela Lansbury as Nancy. Mm -hmm. She's another butler character. She's this no-nonsense woman who knows who this man is and like what he stands for. But I love some of her lines. She does remind me of Hepburn's performance in The Philadelphia Story. She kind of disappears in the middle and comes back at the very end. So I would have liked to have seen more of her. But I did kind of wonder. I was like, is that Lansbury? It's just she's so young. She is so, so young in this movie. What's interesting about what Cucor did with this movie compared to the play version. So there was the play version from 1938. It was also called Gaslight. And it was really popular. It ran for nearly 1,300 performances Vincent Price was the husband. Like, I would love to go back in time and see that. I bet it was amazing. But Cucor decided that he instead wanted to build up the wife role, the Paula role, because in the stage version, the male characters were given more to do and often overshadowed this part and the lead female performance. So what he did instead was he really boosted this role up instead and decided to give it to a really strong actress like Ingrid Bergman recentering the story like away from the detective and the mm-hmm. duplicitous wicked husband and instead focusing on this woman who has just like been through hell and back it's like she cannot catch a break and there are some scenes in this movie that I think are a little over the top that are just very 40s in a way that I don't think Hitchcock would ever do just because that's just not typically what he does in his movies this feels I do think if you're comparing it to Hitchcock movies more akin to something like Rebecca which as we remember is 
David O. Selznick also putting his stamp on it mm-hmm. and pushing back on all the weird little perverse things Hitchcock wanted to do with that story. Some of the scenes are tough to watch. Like when they're at that party, oh my God. And I'm just like, oh, like, please like be quiet. Yeah. Like you need to just get all the help you can get. But yeah, it's, it's difficult to watch at times, but I do think that the performances are great and I don't know. I like the way that it builds up throughout. And by the end, like, I think the suspense is really strong and you just want Brian Joseph Cotton to figure out everything and to save the day because it's clear that like Paula can't figure that out on her own and she doesn't have people advocating for her. And when he brings up the fact that she could be institutionalized or sent away, you feel that the clock is kind of finally ticking and something has to happen. But I agree, it's wrapped up rather quickly for how long I think the rest of the story takes to get there. But I do love that final scene when Greg Anton is tied up, Brian's caught him, and Paula just comes in and she kind of goes insane, being the woman that he thinks she's become. And she is totally aware of everything, but I love that she takes out the knife and like kind of teases him with it and takes it to a 10 because by this moment, We needed this. I needed this to get some relief from the story and to to feel that conclusion, to wrap everything up. And I think this was the best way. And I love that he recentered it for the female character because I'm uninterested with the men here. (laughs) I mean, one of them is helping her and one of them is evil, but they're so much more simple compared to her. Yeah. For sure. It's interesting, I think, that in the movie, you can see Cucor's stamp in that the men are clearly wrapped up in this woman's spell who is no longer there, right? Paula's aunt. Her evil husband is obsessed with, you know, he ends up, he kills her and he's obsessed with her jewels. And then Joseph Cotton's character has loved her, you know, and adored her ever since he was a little boy. So it's like, in a similar way to Rebecca, too, like this ghost of a woman holding power right over the more simplistic male characters in the story. But I don't think I agree. I don't think it's as it's quite as successful as Rebecca, but yes, the, the central role of Paula is the best part of the movie. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? There really isn't a question. It has to go to Ingrid Bergman, who is the most impressive in the movie. And again, it's Ingrid Bergman. You just, are dazzled by her. And with Casablanca being right before this, I feel like she does get a little bit more to do here. She gets to develop this character, which I love to see, even though it's hard to watch at times. But yeah, I definitely think she deserved her win here, which she actually did win for. What would you give it? I completely agree. I think this is Ingrid Bergman's movie. I think this is also a great Best Actress win. Just looking at the history of the category as a whole, I love this win for her. It's my favorite of her wins, and I still think I would have given it to Barbara Stanwyck for Double Indemnity. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, as a whole, like, in this movie, I definitely would go with Ingrid Bergman. I love that Charles Boyer was nominated. I also love that Angela Lansbury was nominated for Supporting Actress, just thinking of, you know, our other actors here. I would have nominated him for Director, too, but... Again, I think my personal winner here would be Ingrid Bergman. She's just fabulous, and she's the center of the movie. It doesn't work without her. It's far less interesting with another actress, too, I think. Well, it's funny that Hitchcock was nominated this year, 
but also the yeah. fact that yeah it was up for picture screenplay and multiple actors it's surprising that he wasn't as well i agree yeah i mean lifeboat isn't exactly the <laughs> right. the hitchcock movie you imagine him getting nominated right. for right <laughs> Okay, so our final film is Born Yesterday from 1950. Description here, uncouth, loudmouth, junkyard tycoon Harry Brock descends upon Washington, D.C. to buy himself a congressman or two, bringing with him his mistress, ex-showgirl Billy Dawn. This was written by Albert Mannheimer with uncredited revisions by Garson Cannon, who also wrote the play it was adapted from. This stars Judy Holliday, Broderick Crawford, and William Holden. It won one Oscar for lead actress for Holiday and was nominated for four others, including picture, director, screenplay, and costume design, black and white. So I think like the others we've talked about, it stars an incredible actress in a central role around many different types of men. But was this also one you saw as a young kid or? Not till later, but I really liked it. I saw it, I think, like for the first time in high school. Um, because I remember writing a paper about Sunset Boulevard then, because as you know, I was obsessed <laughs> with Sunset Boulevard. And I remember just thinking it was an absolute catastrophe that Gloria Swanson lost Best Actress to Judy Holiday, even though I had never seen Born Yesterday. I just had this opinion. And I know a lot of people also have this opinion with or without seeing Born Yesterday. And I have, so I watched it. And I think it's great. It's a delightful movie. And I think she is, she's so wonderful. She's like this ball of light. Mm -hmm. She just feels like this character. And I know that's like a silly cliche thing to say when you're talking about performances. Like, oh, they are this person, right? Like she is Billy Dawn. But I just, it's, it's just such a fun role too. And it's really hard to pull off satire and to pull off comedy. And she does it throughout the entire runtime. I think it's a really, really unique role and performance. And I'm so glad that she got to play it on screen because she was on Broadway in the role for so long. And she was a replacement for Jean Arthur originally. And then she got to do it on stage for so long. But, you know, a lot of times when that happens, it doesn't go to the same actress. They find a movie star instead to play the part. So it's pretty exciting that it went to her and I love her I think I would still go with Gloria Swanson or Betty Davis some days but when I watch this movie I do think like this is a good best actress win because she's fabulous having seen this now makes that category all the harder because I loved her so much I feel like Mm -hmm. Mrs. White in Clue but like I loved her so much (laughs) And the accent that she was doing, this character that she's playing, just, Mm -hmm. oh my god, her physical comedy is unparalleled. It's so good. (laughs) Oh my, just all of the glances to the dictionary or them playing cards and Mm -hmm. her just being so noisy. And then all the cutesy moments between her and William Holden's Paul. And then, like, they're in D.C. They had all these on-location shots that Mm -hmm. you get to see the Washington Monument or they're in there with the Bill of Rights. And she's asking, like, what are they? But, oh, I just, as much as I don't like the damsel in distress trope, the awful, just horrible, hairy character gets his Mm -hmm. comeuppance in the end. And 
she succeeds and like that is such a relief there's so much catharsis there that i am all in on anything that she did yeah i do also love those scenes that take them you know out into dc to these locations yeah she's just delightful to watch like as she's learning from william holden's character especially because i think we've seen william holden at this point in so many different types of roles and the way that he interacts with his leading ladies in all of his movies is so different, right? From Sabrina to Sunset Boulevard to Network decades later, right? It's interesting how he, he navigates those those relationships and plays very different types of characters throughout. Like, he can be a complete himbo. He can be a straight man. He can be this, like, very smart, sensible character. He He's just, he's a great actor, but... I love those scenes with him and Judy Holiday just going over what different terms mean. And she takes, you can tell that she takes this character very seriously, right? Like she could just be like a dumb blonde stereotype. And at first it feels like she could be, but I love that she grows throughout the movie and she mm-hmm. still has that like charm and heart to her while also getting smarter, not just in terms of, you know, what things mean, but like in, in a book or something like that, but in, in what Harry's actually up to and how he's this horrible, crooked man. And she ends up being able to see right through that by the end. And I'm, I'm glad that the film like gives her that arc as a character. I agree. It's like very cathartic and there's no way I think because of Judy Holiday's performance to ever not be fully with this character and fully on her side. Yeah, when she finally says she leaves the apartment, she goes, would you do me a favor, Harry? Drop dead. And it's just finally (laughs) like, yes, that moment that we wanted this whole time because of everything that he doesn't understand of her and what he expects of a marriage to like Mm -hmm. have this violence that she never had as a kid. And that is like what makes her want to leave finally. But I will say the one problem I have with this movie I guess is just how good Broderick Crawford is at being bad Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of him and he is just screaming yelling crabbing the entire time and I just Mm -hmm. need him to shut up because it is infuriating watching him (laughs) but it's also true to life and how these businessmen characters are and I think that's and that really is the heart of the movie is portraying what reality is to an extent and the horrors of that and you know even though they uncover this one person who's trying to buy over this congressman there's so many other cases going on so you can't even get to but you still feel this valor in this moment even if it's one small case have you seen all the king's men it's probably why i didn't like all the king's men yeah, he's he's really good in that movie, but he's just so good at playing men mm-hmm. I don't like. <laughs> yeah, and that whole movie is, and I'm like, mm-hmm. oh God, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting because, you know, he, Cukor in his films, like he plays with these, like a lot of really gross men, right? Like throughout all of his movies are men who do bad things or 
that he constructs kind of as foils to the other men in the story. So here, Roderick Crawford's character is completely different from William Holden's character in many ways, in a similar way to the Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton differences in Gaslight, right? So yeah, I, I like how he does that. And it's around the woman in the middle of the story. And again, like it is, this is Judy Holiday's movie mm. through and through. And, you know, I read this story about how when they were making this film, because it, she was brand new, nobody in Hollywood really knew her or anything like that. And the sound department on the film tried to clean up her voice and make it sound like other Hollywood actresses at the time. And Cukor, he watched early takes and he complained to the sound engineer about the sound. He was like, what happened? The sound's completely different. And he said, the sound engineer specifically told him, we just cut out some of the crud in her lower register. And Cukor told him to stop and fix it because he said, you cut out the comedy and the heart. Wow. I mean, I, I also read that they performed this in front of studio employees to understand the comedy, to get those beats right, and to kind of play through them. Because, again, in this movie, a lot of the jokes are really subtle. They're so quick, too, that you have to be on top of it. But then they were also able to play with that and extend pauses if they needed to or figure out timing. Another thing that I really liked is that Canon, the writer of the play, modeled this after the Columbia production chief, Harry Cohn. And this Mm. movie was distributed by Columbia. And he just, like, didn't care about that reference to him. So this was coming from a real place, but also funny that Harry Cohn just kind of ignored it and didn't care about it and put it out anyway. Mm-hmm. Another thing that's interesting, just about the year at the Oscars, she wasn't nominated for a Tony for this performance from the play, but for Best Actor, Jose Ferrer won the Tony for Cyrano de Bergerac, and he also won the Oscar for it too. So to have the lead actor and actress reprising their roles and winning the Oscars, I think is something we still talk about today a lot. So the fact that this was still happening back then, this is a definite trend. And I'm sure we'll talk about that this year too. I think it also makes sense because George Cukor really got his start with theater like he originally like didn't really care to be a film director. He just loved the stage and he loved the world of theater. So I think when we're thinking about, you know, why he took on certain projects, like these are all play adaptations. And he, you know, worked with the right screenwriters to change what needed to be changed and to stop the studio system from making adjustments that would have been potentially like catastrophic to the lead female roles, like we mentioned with Judy Holiday's voice, or, you know, by strengthening Paula's part in Gaslight, right? Like, these are all things that he was really, I think, able to accomplish. And having this very theatrical approach, I think, really works, suited him well here for Born Yesterday, because he's also able to bring that in and take what he knew from the stage version, but also, you know, get the camera outside and into DC and also how we have that great like suite space with the different rooms and how they can move between them. Like that's something that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do on stage and that would have worked better on film. So 
I think it's it's pretty creative as a play adaptation too. It doesn't feel like something that's straight stage to screen. I don't think any of these do. I think that's part of their power. Yeah, I totally agree. So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It would definitely be Best Actress for Judy Holiday. Three for three on Best Actress. I think she's so funny in this and she takes a role that could have been so just one note or vapid or kind of silly and stereotypical and she turns it into something that has just so much heart and I think she plays it really smartly and again it's so hard I think to do this type of comedy and to do it well and I think she just achieves it in spades what about you it's absolutely Judy Holiday. I like dream of being her just (laughs) how smart (laughs) she becomes in a way yeah i don't know just her essence is infectious like i want to rewatch this movie just to watch her i loved her so much there's this element of like marilyn monroe in there too Mm -hmm. that i love yeah some of that voice play i mean marilyn in 1950 was in all about eve but she wouldn't become a star until later so Oh my god, I I love 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 Judy Holiday here so much and what Kikor did with her character. I want to go on a DC like monuments walking tour with her. <laughs> she's like the only person she's the only person I would do that with after living there. <laughs> Especially with her outfits and her voice, just all of it mm-hmm. is incredible. Oh, I love her. I mean in the play there were five costumes that she wore and then in the film John Lewis, the costume designer, ended up making 13. And I do really like her costumes in the movie, too. I mean, there's the iconic Mm -hmm. one when she's in bed and she's reading the newspaper that's all circled and she reveals herself. I mean, there's a lot of code stuff in this movie, too, that they had to work around. But, yeah, she just looks divine the whole time. She does. I also love that we don't hear from her right away. So the way that the film opens, you're really only hearing from the men and from Roger Crawford. And she's just kind of silently walking around as we get this exposition from the men. And then when she starts speaking, it's a totally different movie. And you're just in. (laughs) I'm like, okay, now you have my attention. This doesn't just feel like a stage play with these men talking about being in DC and the space and you know where the room is and if they have their own private suite Mm -hmm. the second she starts talking it's like you're in the world of George Cukor (laughs) and this like completely different creation (laughs) when you first hear her when I first watched this I wrote down her accent oh my god when she goes that's all I do around here is sign and I went and watched other clips from other movies that she was in I was like okay that's not her voice so she was putting on this persona for this character so that just added this whole other layer to the viewing experience yeah oh she's so wonderful well that was our episode on george cukor we'll probably well i know we're returning to another one of his movies later this year we'll just tease that we won't Mm -hmm. say exactly what it is just yet but I really enjoyed talking about these three movies the philadelphia story gaslight and born yesterday And most importantly, talking about the leading ladies at the center of all three of these, because I really do think all of them are just fabulous in different ways. Yeah, all of our Oscars went to the lead actresses. (laughs) It really does tell you what we thought of these movies and what we love about them and what QCOR loved, too. 
So I think celebrating Mm -hmm. him and the end of cancer season, we can definitely feel those tinges of cancer throughout these movies in all of their own unique ways. Well, next time on Oscar Wilde, the two movies of the moment, they're out now in theaters. We'll be talking about Barbie and Oppenheimer. So we'll be reviewing these movies, talking all about them and the mania that has surrounded this moment for months now. Mania is the right word. I'm really excited to finally see both of these. I feel like they've been talked about for so long. We've been talking about them. Greta Gerwig's follow-up to Little Women and Christopher Nolan's follow-up to Tenet. I'm excited for them both for different reasons. I have to say, though, like after listening to American Prometheus on Audible, the Oppenheimer biography Uh i'm so excited to see what nolan does with that three hour runtime and just the text and everything like that i just i can't wait i'm so excited i'm currently scheduled to see both of them twice before we record oh my god (laughs) so we'll see if i end up following through with that but yeah 70 millimeter imax oh i'm so excited And the Barbie blowout screening I have on Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that means. Well, you have to get your Barbie convertible popcorn, right? I I saw that and I just... I said, how can you clean that? You cannot clean it. It is not functional. Exactly. That's... (laughs) It gave me like anxiety. It gave me... It made me kind of sick looking at it. Like imagining like little pieces of popcorn getting stuck under like the plastic seats of the car and stuff like that it just doesn't seem functional no it's really small or if it's big like you cannot carry that around it's such a waste there are gonna be so many convertibles in the trash look if i go to amc i am that 30 year old who gets a kid's pack so anyway (laughs) the best i'm very excited to see both of these movies and to talk about them next week Thank you all for listening. If you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and now TikTok at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can find bonus content on Patreon at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thank you all, and see you next time. Bye.